Jesus slipped his feet out of his sandals as he got closer to the water's edge. The mix of water with the dust and the dirt, it, it made a mud that kind of pushed through his toes with each step. It was soft, but, but there was no romance to this kind of mud. It was dirty. You and I would probably take a couple steps in. We'd take a deep breath because we realized that our, our clothes are going to be stained with mud. And then we would pray that we have OxyClean back at home. Jesus, or John, already in the water, he had preached like a master street evangelist. Repent, he would exclaim. Prepare the way of the Lord. He spoke powerfully. He was prophetic, commanding, convincing, and he, he had an edge of crazy to him. His clothing was weird. Most would choose to wear a lighter material in such an arid climate, but not him. He wanted camel hair clothes, and he wanted to accessorize with leather. It was unusual, but it didn't stop people from seeing him, visiting with him, talking to him. John had baptized people from Jerusalem, Judea, and the whole Jordan region. The people would confess their sins, and John would baptize them with water for repentance. Jesus, now on the bank of the river, mud between his toes, had nothing to repent of. But here he was. John knew this. And with a prophetic humility pushed back, Jesus, you, you should be baptizing me. Did you ever hear you never get a second chance to make a first impression? Think about Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark. The hammer of a gun clicks back, and with a swift move, Indiana Jones unfurls his whip, disarms the man with the gun, and then steps into the light for the first time. Indiana Jones. Or Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder in Willy Wonka. He was the rarely seen recluse Willy Wonka. He walks out of his factory the first time in almost 10 years, limping his way to the gate of his chocolate factory. His cane gets stuck. And just as it looks as if he's about to collapse, he rolls into a somersault and bounces to his feet. These are first impressions. John the Baptist tells Jesus, you should be baptizing me. Deep breath, people. First words of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Shoot, first words of Jesus in the entire New Testament. If you don't have a Bible today, know our ushers have them. Grab one, we'll be using it today. First words of Jesus in the entire New Testament. This is what he says. This is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. John didn't understand it. It was outside of anything he had been taught. It was outside of anything he had taught. But they're still the first words of Jesus to John, to you, to me, inviting us into a world that's beyond our understanding. A sinless man identifies himself with sinful women and sinful men he had come to rescue. This is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. John complies. He welcomes Jesus into the water, coaches him to pinch his nose when he goes under. 
dunks them, brings them back up. Matthew's gospel says the heavens suddenly opened at the spirit and the spirit of God descended like a dove. Mark's gospel, it says the heavens are torn apart and the spirit descends upon Jesus. Then we get a voice. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. I don't see this as a hug. I don't see this as a sweet, warm moment where Jesus gets a slight smile on his face. The sun hits him just right. And you hear Christopher Plummer playing Edelweiss in the background. (laughs) It's not that moment. I think it was turbulent. It was more turbulent than at least it was smooth operating. I think it was wild. I think it was a little rowdy. Imagine just the voice of God. Last week, Ed Sherman preached and said that God is eternal, and, it doesn't, and he doesn't operate under our expectations of time. God's eternality means that God is both outside of time and over it. So when God's vertical realm of being both outside of time yet over it intersects with our horizontal realm of time and space, I think it shows up with a force that can shake a person to their core. It can turn their world upside down. That is God's voice. That is God's voice. That is the heavens being torn apart. It gets better and closer to my connection with 2 Peter as this gospel progresses. So the spirit descends on Jesus. And sticking with Mark's gospel, the spirit immediately sends Jesus into the wilderness. The spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. The spirit casts Jesus out into the wilderness. The spirit that descended is now driving. Perhaps being set apart by baptism means that a wilderness is ahead. ahead. Think about that for your own journey. Uh, I went camping last week, Ohio Pile. Ohio Pile is Pennsylvania's largest state park. It's wildernessy, right? (laughs) Maybe. Well, so I posed... And I wore my saw on my leg, flippy flappies on my feet, tent in the background. I'm so wilderness. I convinced the children in the area, my own included, that it was a wilderness rite of passage to saw chunks of wood off a log I found. I then peacefully did some rock balancing near a local stream. One evening, we went up to a high place to watch the sunset. Is this the wilderness Jesus went to? Did he do some rock balancing after convincing children to cut him fireward? (laughs) Jesus went into the desert. It's rocky. It's rough. Wilderness is frequently more associated with being deserted, lonely, solitary. There was nothing to insulate himself from external things. Just as much there was nothing to silence some of his own human voice. A remarkable amount of soul work needs to be done in those times. And then Satan shows up in this place of isolation. He offers some things. I like how Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of them writing with their own styles, each of them recognizing the divinity of Christ, see Jesus differently than us. They see his humanity better than any one of us 
ever could. His time in the wilderness is a continuation of the baptism, of his identifying with humankind. In 1872, a Russian artist, Ivan Kromskoy, created a remarkable oil-on-canvas piece of Jesus in the wilderness. The painting illustrates well the cold starkness of a rocky desert, and the only gentle colors are coming from the sun rising at the horizon. They're still cold, though. I do enjoy art of Jesus clearing the temple, or the art in your bulletin of Jesus holding a boy's lunch, or cultural art of nativity scenes. Those art pieces of Christ frequently show an action. It's wonderful. This one, though, has remarkable inactivity. And it's struck me for the last number of years. I think it was my wife that first accidentally introduced me to it. Jesus sits, slightly off-center, hands clasped, feet dirty, no sandals. He's thin from fasting, mind turning over and over. He was baptized earlier. A voice spoke out and said to him, you are the son of God. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him yet still fully human. What a mind game. Then Satan shows up with temptations. And what were those temptations? There were three. After 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, he was confronted by Satan. Number one, the first temptation. Satan said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. I'm cautious to give props to Satan, but that's kind of a clever move. I mean, it's crafty. If you are the son of God. Remember at the baptism, this is my son. It's already been declared publicly. This is my son. But if you are the son of God, it is a total challenge to his identity. His identity that was so boldly declared earlier. Don't you think in some ways he wants to prove that he's the son of God? It feels okay, right? And to prove it, and to prove that he's the son of God, Satan addresses a physical need for food after 40 days of fasting. Turn this rock into bread. Certainly Jesus had the power to perform such a miracle. The picture in the bulletin today, it comes from Luke 9, is Jesus using a boy's lunch to feed thousands of people. Surely you have the power to change one rock into one loaf of bread if you are the son of God. But the temptation is not to simply perform a miracle. It was to renounce his trust in God. This has already played out in Israel's history. Israel was in the wilderness. When they got hungry, they complained, saying that God only brought them out of Egypt to starve. Where do I get this? The same place Jesus got his answer to give to Satan. Deuteronomy. Jesus says, man should not live on bread alone. The full verse from Deuteronomy says this, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on 
every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That was the first temptation. The second temptation, Jesus, uh, Satan takes Jesus up to a high place where they're able to see all the kingdoms of the world at one time. I don't know where this is. I don't know how this was accomplished, but this would be quite the sight for someone who has been without anything for 40 days in the desert in isolation. Everything that Satan can offer is offered to Jesus, but there's a part of the deal. Only, the only part of the deal is Jesus needs to worship Satan in order to get these things. Man, it's like another flashback to Israel. Israel was offered the land of milk and honey. And Moses comes strolling down the mountain and sees the Israelites worshiping a golden calf. They made a choice. What does Jesus do in this moment? He goes back to Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Aces. He used scripture twice to stop the abuse of power. There's one more temptation. Number three, they go to a new location. They're at the pinnacle of the temple. Some people write that the pinnacle of the temple would be 150, 160, 170 feet from top to bottom, and you could stand on the edge. Satan challenges Jesus to throw himself off and trust that the angels will protect him. Twice now, though, Jesus has used scripture to defend himself. And I'll say Satan was listening. Because Satan uses Psalm 91 to proof text his challenge. It's, it's a move. An incredible move, but poorly played. The Psalms are Jesus' prayer book. He knows these Psalms. He knows the whole context of each Psalm because that was part of his Jewish heritage. He knew them. He memorized them. He knew them as prayers from his people for his people. So Satan, the dizzying height of the temple, Jesus, weak from fasting and isolation, says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. It is written, Psalm 91. Satan's saying this, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They, the angels, will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This... I believe, is the moment Jesus might look up, slide a smile on his face at Satan. Is this the best you got? At my most human, this is your game? And Jesus, with the home run hitting book of Deuteronomy, answers, it is said, do not Test the Lord your God. Join me in something. Please do something with me. Would you say a prayer with me? Repeat after me. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Deuteronomy. Amen. Have you ever said that one before? Perhaps we should more often. What's it all matter to 2 Peter? What's it all matter to 2 Peter 3, 10 through 18? And this is where I want to make that jump. This is our 22nd week, 22 weeks. We've been in these letters from people, from Peter, and this is our final week in the series. Well done, everybody. I pray your journey in this time, in these letters, has brought up things to reflect upon 
in your own journey with Christ. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 18 is the final section of scripture in 2 Peter. And this is where Peter wraps everything up for us and ends with one magnificent benediction, one final word to send followers of Christ into the unknown. And if you don't know who I am, I serve on the pastoral team here at LEFC. Uh, my name is Nicholas Todd. Follow along with me as I read 2 Peter 3, 10 through 18. Starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. I primarily see three sections in this piece from Scripture. We're going to start in verse 10. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. This is a great linking verse with what Ed Sherman preached last week. This is clearly about end times again. And Peter writes, not speculating on when God will intervene and when Christ shall return, but he's writing about the method in which it will feel like. It will be unexpected, like the coming of a thief. If we know a thief is coming to our home, you got the warning. You're being forewarned. Hey, hey, guess what? I'm going to show up tomorrow. I'm going to steal some things. Okay? Great. Great. I'm going to come around 8 o'clock. Well, if you got that phone call, what would you do? You'd make sure the house was locked, windows was locked. You might have some friends sitting outside. What? You're going to be prepared for this. Thieves don't do that. This will be unexpected like the coming of a, of a thief. Peter is springing off of the immediate verses in 8 and 9, and they say, my paraphrase, chill, God isn't late with Christ. God's giving you space and time to change. What will it be like, though? Verse 10, like a thief with a roar, and you'll be exposed. I love the balance in the song, It Is Well With My Soul. You hear, Lord, haste, the day. 
Would you come, Lord? Now hear this verse. It's surprising. There's a roar. There's fire. There's judgment. There is loss. Even so, it is well with my soul. Verse 11 through 17. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. In 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14, Peter sows a perspective on who we are to be as followers of Christ and gives a series of encouragements. How are we to live? We are to live holy and godly lives, looking forward to a place where righteousness dwells. We should make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace. Spotless, blameless, holy, and godly lives. This touches on the moral and ethical parts of our lives. In verse 15, Peter comes back to our anticipation of Christ's return and says that our Lord's patience means salvation. God's God's patience with all of humankind is our opportunity Two complementary ways to think about this. The first, we get to spread the gospel in our homes, in our cities, in our region, and across the world. And two, it's our individual opportunity to work on our own holy, godly lives. We get to work toward a new heaven and a new earth, a place filled to the brim with God's wonderful justice, a time when all will be set right both individually and corporately. Let's bring it back to the temptations in the desert. What a gift Jesus was tempted. What a gift Jesus was tempted. Hebrews 2.18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4:15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet he did not sin What a gift What a gift we have that Jesus was tempted I see the three temptations in the wilderness as the universal temptations that all of humanity faces as they take on power, 
and responsibility. The temptations were about the misuse of power, and it was a challenge to his identity. These temptations address the misuse of practical, everyday power, the misuse of religious power, and the misuse of political power. These are the things that continue to defeat humanity. But Jesus passes all three tests. Not with Psalms. Not with Proverbs. But with the wisdom of Deuteronomy. Pray with me again to thank you, Lord, for the book of Deuteronomy. One might think that this is easy to choose from. Here's a choice. Are you ready? We, got, we always got choices in life, good versus evil. All right, here's, here's your choices. I want you to choose Jesus or Satan. I'll give you a minute. We all know the right answer. You're wondering, is there a trick to it? What Nick's, what's Nick going to No, the right answer is Jesus. Know that. We all know the right answer because the options are simple. Temptations, however, are always about good things. Or we would not be tempted. Our daily ethical choices are not between total good and total evil. Our choices often deal with various shades of good or a manipulated good. Think about Jesus for a second. Is there anything wrong with bread? Got a loaf of bread. Am I going to get fired? No. No, there's nothing wrong with bread. But what Jesus had to work through was who was central to his place and role on earth. He had to remember the character of God. Bread is good, but Satan used what was good and twisted it to be an absolute good that trumps all other things. Evil can disguise itself as good. This is what gets us into trouble. Spotless, blameless, and at peace is difficult. At the very beginning of our series, 22 weeks ago, we looked at Matthew 16. Peter declared who Jesus was. Jesus called Peter the rock. And then Peter wrote in the very first chapter of 1 Peter, he, he wrote about a call to holy living. Do you receive the recycling that keeps happening? Claim that identity. Commit to holy living. Are you tempted by something? Claim that identity. Commit to holy living. Are you being persecuted? Are you being abused by others? Claim that identity you've been given. Commit to holy living. With all these encouragements and warnings, Peter summarizes in verse 18. This is the final section. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. 
Amen. This isn't an encouragement for an isolated group. Are you new to following Jesus? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you followed Jesus for decades? Grow in the grace and knowledge of Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you a child? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. From the, from the beginning of the book of Peter to the end of the book of 2 Peter, we have a beautifully high view on the person, nature, and role of Christ. I pray that our time in First and Second Peter has been one that has nourished your soul. It's challenged your life and behavior and brought up in you memories of your salvation. Pray with me as we continue our worship. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for the last 22 weeks to sit under pastors and elders to hear about First and Second Peter. from the beginning of relative peace to somewhere in the middle where Christians doing right were still tortured to now where there's another reminder of who we are and how we ought to be living. I'm grateful. Would every one of us see these patterns played out in Scripture over and over? Would we fall in love with New Testament and Old Testament? Would see how they are, they are completely connected? Lord, I pray for everyone here. Would we be able to distinguish between the wild beasts in our wilderness and the angels? Help me to see how often I confuse one with the other. What a gift we have in knowing that you were baptized, sent into the wilderness, endured temptation, and came to give us victory over sin. Receive our worship. Amen. The benediction. Go now, wait and work for the coming of the day of the Lord. In the wilderness, prepare a straight path for the Lord. Live lives of holiness and godliness. Strive to be found at peace, growing grace, and speak freely of the Lord's comfort and promise. May God gather you in loving arms. May Christ Jesus reconcile justice and peace within you. And may the Holy Spirit baptize you into the life of God. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ, amen. Hey, kids and adults, if you colored the image in the bulletin, I'd love to see it if you'd be willing to share it with me. We'll see you next week.